Amazing. Well, thank you, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Pitch Please. Um, thanks to those who've been have been tuning in. We really appreciate it. We, re- we see the shares on social. Um, we're very much appreciative of that. Um, you know, we love getting the feedback as well. For those just tuning in for the first time, we are Rebellious PR, a boutique PR firm. Just make it space for underrepresented founders, you know, doing our thing, our part for for the world. Um, We're always, of course, finding ourselves breaking down the walls in our relentless pursuit of visibility for movers and shakers. So we work in a myriad of different industries and, of course, all seen through the eyes of our team here, consisting of fellow rebel rousers, thought leaders and free thinkers. And, of course, part of that team, myself, I'm Megan Jones. Um, I'll be taking you through the pod here today. Uh, and of course, our founder extraordinaire, Evie Smith. Hello. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for being here today with us. And none other than the VP herself, Miss Rachel Johnston. Welcome. Howdy. Howdy. Hello. How you doing? I don't know why I chose howdy. I, I love it. I'm, I'm feeling Dolly this week, so I feel like it's... <laughs> Very, it's very fitting. Um, but our theme on uh, the first series of the podcast has been all about disruption, right? We're talking about you know movers and shakers within different industries. I feel the word "quote unquote" you know disruption comes up quite often, maybe perhaps overused um, in the business world these days. But you know, what does that all really mean? Should you care about disrupting your business or, or even your life? And, and you know, what does all of that you know? Does all success require this type of disruption? So on the last episode, we talked about our actually our favorite disruptors. Um, you know, we talked about uh, dis- disruptive companies like Thinks and Nix. Um, you know, Backstage Capital, um, which is a company investing in a lot of underrepresented founders. Um, you know, Diva Cup, man, menstruation, right? Just like really trying to trying to break the waves there. <laughs> The red um, waves. <laughs> yes, exactly. Surfing that crimson tide, as they say. Um, I don't know that the kids are, are still saying that, but but this episode, I think, you know, to sort of maybe tie it all together over the theme of disruption, we want to be able to offer uh, people, you know, tactics and tools and resources that they can use, right? And kind of describing the different types of media that you can disrupt with. So, um, you know, I think to take it back to, you know, maybe what, what uh, students are learning in school, right? But like the, the peso model, right? Okay, paid, earned, shared, and owned. So we're kind of gonna go through that. And I think, um, you know, let's start at the, at the top of the, the food chain uh, with paid. You know, um, I think that most people are probably familiar with sponsor, you know, sponsored social media posts and content. I think that that's like first and foremost, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I actually, I feel like Rachel, you have maybe more experience here in the pay. I'm like, I'm like the hella scrappy cheap one. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah. Um, you know, paid is interesting because depending on like where you're wanting to put your budget, it's a little bit of a moving target. Um, you know, I, uh, anyone who talks to me knows that I like to think about things in, uh, conceptual terms and money is just a concept. 
that we have all agreed upon as a society to have value. And so the values that we assign to things is also somewhat arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, how you choose to spend your budget um, for PR or marketing um, really just boils down to what you find valuable and what you're willing to pay for that thing. Um, you know, I think that influencers, uh, and, uh, people who are influential on different social media platforms, whether that's YouTube or Instagram or TikTok, um, I think that they've really sort of been a, a, a perfect example of how, uh, different communities have different values of things and how that can vary quite widely. Um, I think traditional media, you'll see a little bit more standardization and what you can expect for costs. I think that if you are looking for paid editorial or advertising at any of the major publishers, um, you're bound to see something fairly competitive because they're all sort of playing the same game. They're playing the same foot race and they want um, the advertising dollars from the companies that a lot of them are vying for the same attention. Um, so they're more likely to fall in line with um competing with each other. Whereas with influencers, it really, uh, depends on who their audience is and, um, what that community looks like, you know, is it, is it a micro, is it a nano, is it a macro, you know, mm -hmm. how, and to, and to what audience are they speaking, right? Like, are we talking about somebody who is a makeup artist? And so, you know, they are speaking to a beauty focused audience or are we, talking to somebody who is social justice focused, um, where their audience is um, a, a different kind of active participant, right? Like that audience is not an audience that you can expect to uh, have a call to action to spend money on product. Whereas like a beauty influencer, the call to action most certainly is uh, product-based. So, um, I think people, I, I think one of the challenges of marketing um, in a smart way is to assign value to the things that you think are important for your brand's identity. Yeah, it's like not gonna be, it's not gonna be a perfect fit. What somebody else does is not necessarily mm -hmm. gonna be your path. And and I think, you know, it's interesting we're talking about, you know, you're talking about uh, paid and I'm having flashbacks of Mad Men, um, you know, of sort of back in the day when, you know, everything was so uh, commercially driven and, you know, doing things always by paid. And of course, kind of going into the next tier of earned media, um, I think before that, now what we're starting to see, especially in this day and age, given the current uh, landscape of the world, right? We're in the middle of a, a global pandemic, um, is a lot of media trying to save their jobs and, and trying to, uh, keep people paid and mm -hmm. are almost like instituting a, I don't want to call it a pay to play, mm -hmm. um, but a, a paid scenario. Right. So I'm, I'm very interested to see how that's going to, uh, change the landscape of media in general. Yeah, we are in the middle of a shift and it's um even from our clients who work in the advertising space on our B2B arm um you know, it's like they're saying that it's almost like advertising's never been cheaper and I think like for us we're seeing clients ask us about paid paid media. Um it, so yeah, it is like it is like an interesting and like for the and, and us really entertaining that cuz I I mean usually like I'm very anti-paid just because 
you know, like at the core of like what we do, it's like we're building somebody's reputation. And if you're buying articles in my mind, I'm like, that kind of goes against the whole, like we're building real brand cred through earned media, but I'm into it. Um, especially if like price points are going to be, be reasonable. Um, you know, I think it used to be something like 25 K for like a something on ad age, you know, and it's just like 25 K you know, you know, the writer is not making anywhere close to that, but, um, it's like that, the value assigned and like what you were talking about, Rachel. Um, yeah, I just, and I also think like the other sort of interesting part, um, is a little bit of like, like there is this, these areas that are, are like Rachel was saying are more standardized. And then there's these areas that are still so new, but have been deemed like have tos in marketing, like podcasts and influencers, where it's a little bit of like the wild west, where it's like, even how we on the back end pitch those like vary so differently from opportunity to opportunity because there's no standardization in how they work either because mm-hmm. they're so new. So it's like the, the price reflections are also, the price is also a reflection of like the organizational element of it as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, you know, um, you know, also just the, the, the landscape, you know, we're talking a lot about like social media influencers and even that landscape has changed so much, right? That world was like, you just had like your celebrity influencers and then you just had people that sort of made it big on YouTube that then turned to social media. But then like those tiers got dropped on, right? You had your influencers, you had your micro influencers, you had your nano, you had your macro, you know, kind of like you were saying, Rachel, so it's like all these different layers of how that can, you know, so again, it's going to vary so differently. So I want to get into, you know, talking about earned media because that's sort of the next layer in, in sort of the, the peso model. Right. And with that, I, I think brings up, of course, you know, our mainstay, which is media relations, blogger influencer relations, right? Uh, anything um, having to, you know, relate to stakeholders in a sense. Um, but I think also it's important to note that bloggers and influencers sometimes, you know, you're, they're not getting paid. They're doing it simply because it's like they want to advocate for the brands uh, mm-hmm. at times or, but, you know, paid maybe through products, let's say. Um, but, um, but yeah, let's talk a little bit about, about earned media. What do you feel Evie is like, what's been your approach to earned media? Um, yeah, I mean, in my mind, like I'm lived my entire professional life in the PR piece of the marketing pie. And so in my mind, earned media is like the most important part of the PR campaign. But I, Mm -hmm. I guess like realistically it's, it works the best when it's balanced with other, other parts of it. Like, you know, like what is your social campaign? Like, what are you, are you doing social paid stuff? So it's like, I do understand that it it works the best when it is works in conjunction with these other pieces. But, um, I think that in order to build real brand reputation, you should have an aggressive earned media plan. And I will give you the example of Blue Apron. I think Blue Apron did a really great job in um, tapping untraditional resources for marketing, but not earned media. Um, And then when they did start to get 
press, it was very negative and it was very easy for their reputation to kind of just fall to there. It's like, oh yeah, like all the millennials are using, you know, these meal services like Blue Apron, but did you hear about all these fist fights that are happening in the packaging facility? Like they must have bad infrastructure. So it's like, they didn't really, they hadn't really built, built like this, like sort of media sweetheart reputation in the same way that they built their like influencer and podcast reputation. Um, so I think that that's like a really good example of where like some of that could have been thwarted, um, or not had, could have been glossed over a little bit more if they had um, thought about earned media in the same way that they had as much as their podcast advertising. Totally. And, and and I think that that's because like you're building the authenticity of the brand, right? You're, you're able to like, the brand is coming across like way more relatable through the press. You're oftentimes because we're pitching, you know, not only products, but like trying to paint the stories of these founders that are building these companies um, and sharing their stories, which ultimately is going to help the consumer relate back and buy those set product, right? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think you make a really good point as to, you know, definitely needs to be balanced, but how very important that storytelling aspect is. And and the ability to control that story, you know, um, you know, yeah, I think that that's, and again, comes through pretty clear when you have companies like Blue Apron that are, you know, throwing things to shit because they didn't want to invest in that. Yeah. Or just didn't think, or thought it was too old school or something, you know, like I get these new shiny brands, um, that really want to, um, you know, they think they're sort of maybe like, taking a shortcut by going the influencer podcast route. But I think that if anything, um, PR, it's like, yeah, it is very old school what we do and how we do it. But it is also like, there's nothing more valuable than a, than good relationships with the press or even any kind of relationship with the press and like a good piece of like thought leadership or a good, you know, feature article. Um, and I think that, you know, really the, the future of PR is, um, you know, new expecting to get a bunch of coverage around news is gonna have to be a thing of the past, just based on the sheer number of like, there's fewer and fewer press people doing more and more work and company Mm -hmm. news, unless you're like Google is just like, not that interesting to people to report on because they have to prioritize big companies news. And so where you can win as a small brand in earned media is with thoughtful storytelling. How do you fit into the world? What is your ethos? Like, how are you trying to change the world? And so things become more story driven, less news driven. And I think that that is, we're going to see less and less of, uh, press releases and more and more of like, okay, let's talk, you know, I think more founders will be wanting to approach earned media in the same thoughtfulness that they are wanting to approach, uh, influencer advertising. Yeah, I, I, well, I hope so. Um, you know, that's the kind of world I want to live in. That's for sure. Um, and you know, I think, but you're absolutely right. And I think second to that, which sort of leads us into the next layer is, you know, the shared media portion, right. Which is like, again, social media, co-branding or partnerships. I think that that is another way 
in which brands, I think it's very important, right? Power in numbers, uh, collaboration through community. Um, I think having these very solid partnerships or collaborations um, is only going to help like amplify the voice of your brand. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious how um, one of our clients has benefited from a partnership uh, with either an organization or a media outlet. Um, You know, maybe I'm thinking of you know, uh, maybe more allure to Carlo where they're working like with the museum of sex or any sort of mm-hmm. like, you know, yeah, they've done a lot of interesting partnerships. Yeah. I can, I mean, I can talk about their MoMA par- partnership. Um, the other one I was thinking, I'm assuming we're editing this chunk out. And um, the other one I was thinking about was the lesbians who tech, um, queer 50, queer 50. That's a great okay. example. So, um, we will pause here. <laughs> okay. So I'm wondering if we could talk about, you know, um, shared uh, media in the sense of, you know, any of our clients who have worked with media outlets or, you know, other organizations to help um, amplify, you know, their message or their story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think one uh, place that uh, I've seen some really interesting uh, movements happening is with our client, Laura DiCarlo. Um, they are a sex tech company and uh, it is an incredibly thoughtful design. And so um, they have had some partnerships uh, both in lifestyle and in technology um, and in design. And one that is top of mind for me uh, that came to fruition just as the pandemic was setting in. So- sort of see this come to life more um, after the world opens back up. But um, they were approached by the uh, Museum of Modern Art in New York um, for a women-led design uh, display in, in MoMA. Um, and so it is, a, as I understand it, it's an exhibit celebrating some of the um, unique, um, you know, forward-thinking designs from uh, women founded companies and engineers and, um, has this really unique cross section with art, um, and the beauty of industrial design and product design, which is, um, a very, uh, unique skill in and of itself. Like most people don't think about, um, you know, what it takes to design a functional chair or to design a, a beautiful lamp, but, you know, every single thing that we have in our homes and in our lives has some sort of industrial design that, that touches it. So, um, that's, that's one unique partnership that I think stands out for me because it, uh, reinforces the company's, um, you know, mission of driving a, a conversation. It also reinforces, uh, the company's standards for, uh, design aesthetic and, um, technology. So it yeah. kind of, it checks all the boxes. And I, and I, I personally love, you know, being a fellow creative. Um, I love that, you know, at the base level of everything, artists, um, are driving innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, is in relation to, uh, a, just the MoMA's, uh, ability to think outside of the box to offer this to a sex tech company. And second to that, um, you know, I feel that engineers are artists, um, you, you know, not, not the typical, right. You wouldn't think that because their brains work 
you know, somewhat different than, than, you know, um, maybe a visual artist or something like that. But, um, you know, the way their minds work, um, I think is, um, and, and the output of their product is, is so creative. So that's really exciting to, to hear that. Um, and, and I, you know, also, um, you know, sort of on the other, uh, end of the spectrum when it comes to partnerships, um, partnerships with, you know, different media outlets and Evie, I want you to sort of talk about our, um, client lesbians who tech. I know we have an interesting, uh, partnership going on there. I'd love to tell our audience. About yeah, it. no, it's, you know, this is definitely a career first for me. Um, you know, getting to our client, our client, Lesbians Who Tech, um, we, we, Rebellious PR, was able to secure a partnership with um, Fast Company Magazine for the first ever um, like Fast 50 queer women and non-binary individuals list. Um, and so, you know, on there's so many cool factors to this. Like the one part is, you know, Rebellious is always trying to help move history in the right direction. And so being able to create like kind of the world's first and like create like a historic moment um, for women and for queer women and non-binary individuals. Um, but I think it really shows, you know, when we approached Fast Company, um, what's interesting is I approached Lesbians Who Tech has had this idea for years. They've really wanted to do it, but didn't know how to make it happen. Um, and so we started sort of poking around different contacts that we had and a, you know, run of the mill tech writer at Fast Company. I was like, hey, like I have this idea. And he's like, yeah, I don't think we'd ever do that. And then I went right to the editor in chief and she was very interested. So I think that that is like kind of an excellent example of just like go right to the decision maker when you want to do a partnership of any kind. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people sometimes don't, you know, people who maybe aren't the boss or aren't like decision makers quite often don't think about doing things that aren't the status quo and like the people who are in charge and who are, um, trailblazers and pioneers, which, you know, fast company has an amazing woman of color, Stephanie Meta as their, um, EIC right now. And so, you know, that's a woman who's like thought outside of the box a lot in her career. And she definitely saw the value right out of the gate with doing a historic list like this this year. Um, so that is actually going to be, um, like officially announced, um, you know, at the beginning of pride month, um, in June and, um, yeah, I mean, but it's like such a great example of, you know, the reason why lesbians who tech was able to partner with fast company on this is that they have done an excellent job in building brand reputation over the last five, six years. Um, and they themselves are doing something that has never been done before. And, um, you know, they've built an amazing community of like 40,000 people or just something insane. So, um, you know, it just, there is really great opportunities when you are at the right point in your company life. Like this is definitely not something that fast company probably would have been open to five years ago. Um, so like the world has also changed, but you know, for a brand new organization that would have been harder to achieve. Whereas when you start to become more establishment, build brand reputation, build brand trust, build visibility, um, that, you know, partnerships like this are, you know, totally possible if you, if you think outside the box. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I I think you're right. Like how far we've come, um, you know, just as a society, uh, many, 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 uh, far ways to go, but, um, very, very happy to see where, where we've landed, especially with this. And, and I think that sort of brings us to the last, uh, layer, the O in peso, right. Um, 
which is the owned thought leadership portion of this, which we've kind of sprinkled um, throughout, right? Kind of talking about it. And I think to sort of jump from, you know, this uh, opportunity that we're, we're talking about with, um, you know, the Queer 50, that in and of itself is going to get a, a lot of that, that uh, thought, you know, that owned thought processing there, right? With like user-generated content that's going to come out of that, um, you know, people, again, promoting that through um, different testimonials, um, you know, of course, you have, you know, your brand, your customer stories, uh, your employees stories, or any sort of like webinars that you're doing, essentially anything that is coming um, out from your brand itself. That's like the last, right? It's like your your newsletters, your blogs, your things that you're, you as a brand are putting out into that space. I'm curious to know, um, Rach and Evie, to you both, do you have any brands that you follow that you're really loving, you know, how they're communicating with you as a customer? Maybe not necessarily a disruptive brand, but, you know, um, you know, like a newsletter that you get that you really like or. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm such a fan of Finks's newsletter, um, and Dame's newsletter. I think that they have both, I mean, those are brands that are like interesting to me, like professionally and personally. Um, but it's like, there's always like thoughtful content where I'm like, maybe learning something I didn't know, um, in, it, there's like a nice curation, um, and some nice, they've, they've done a really good job. Um, just like a really excellent job. I think thinks thinks is, is just like amazing. And I think that they really set the standard, um, for any kind of like health and wellness in the space personally. Yeah. And, and I feel also just like as a brand, they're, they're pretty tapped into each of these little niche niches, right? Mm-hmm. Like I see definitely paid, um, you know, I've seen the earned, I see them do some really great partnerships, um, with, uh, you know, when we were working with Nadia with the period mm-hmm. movement, you know, partnerships with organizations, nonprofits like that, um, that are really trying to disrupt the the status quo. And then of course, yeah, like you're saying this, um, their own owned media, um, as far as what they're putting out into the space. I love that. And you know, you're adding to it with this uh, little uh, shout out for them. So this is like, mm-hmm. a, you know, I do, um, I do think, goes. yeah, I do think that they, I think they could do more in earned media personally, but I'm also like an earned media snob. So yeah, but yeah, yeah. No, I, I would love to hear more. I mean, you know, you hear a lot about them as like a brand, right. But like the person behind that brand and the sort of, you know, definitely let's elevate that for sure. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Rach, what's your, you, I feel like you read so much. Oh my God. I, I do. And, um, I was the first, uh, newsletter that popped in my head, of course, was thanks. Um, I just think it's, it's really excellent. Um, and I'm having a hard time actually thinking of anyone who is doing it better than them. Um, most of the time, like, I just feel like their voice is incredibly consistent and, um, thoughtful and relevant to anyone who has a uterus. Yeah. I think, Uh, I think on the professional side, I think, um, pixability, I feel hmm. like we'd, we'd had a bunch of those, outlets that we were tracking when we had a client in that space. And I, I found mm-hmm. myself, I think Pixabilities was like the last one I unsubscribed to because I kept 
like getting caught by their headlines and like reading the articles. So yeah. I, I feel like that they, they did like a good, good job curating content that was clearly of interest to anybody who would be using their service or thinking about paying for them. Um, so yeah, it's like those interesting ingredients. It's like, I, there's definitely some newsletters where I'm like, Oh my God, unsubscribe. (laughs) This is trash. Please. Like, why am I getting you? I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm definitely seeing some like paid advertising come up like in my organic feeds that I like don't super appreciate, but yeah, their thing. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like the the newsletters that are hitting it out of the park right now are ones that are, and and maybe it's like a right now thing is, um, I don't super appreciate it that people are trying to sell me stuff right now, Mm -hmm. but I do appreciate, and I'm more likely to go buy shit off your site. If you give me some good content and give me some good value versus giving Mm -hmm. me like quippy subject lines, I don't know. It's like, it's an, it's an interesting thing. And I almost wish that more brands were putting as much effort into their email newsletters as they were their sales e- emails, because sale, it, I just feel like we're all a little sensitive right now. Um, and we're all very sensitive about where our dollars are going right now. You know, that actually brings up a really interesting pivot point, um, you know, for a trend that we're seeing internally, um, Mm. we're seeing a lot more of our clients asking us for our like PR advice and lens on their email newsletters. Um, because I think that a lot of brands are listening to the fact that people, uh, don't love some of the newsletters they're getting. They don't Mm -hmm. love some of the content that they're getting. Like I do think it's weird that I'm still getting, um, some marketing like drip campaigns in my inbox. Um, like I'll just call out one cause I really, I don't, they're not going to hear this and I don't really care what they think, but like society six that like, oh, yeah. so I was like looking for curtains for my closet thinking that I was going to like redo the, the facing and like, you know, I, I went on there and, and, you know, saw like $95 curtains. And I was like, do I need to spend $95 on curtains? Let me think about what color I want. Close the browser left literally 30 minutes later, I got an email from them with like a discount code that was like, you know, uh, don't leave your, don't leave your cart. Like, and it had all the curtains I'd looked at and had a discount code. And I was just instantly just like, Whoa, that is so aggressive. Like, uh, and, and then again, this morning I got another email that was like reminder to use your like special discount. And it's like, I mean, I appreciate the discount because it's a pandemic, but I don't, appreciate the discount with the aggressive email. Yeah. It's actually too much. Yeah. Maybe like a couple, like wait a day or two and then be like, Hey, did you have time to think about this? I know it's going to take a lot to process a lot of decisions right now. So maybe you should, uh, yeah, no, I totally agree with you in, in that, in that aspect, 100%. Like if I, if I look at, you know, I'm not the the person writing the, the algorithms for like how the drip campaigns get sent, but like 
if somebody's looking at a curtain at like, you know, six o'clock on a Thursday, like maybe email them on Sunday when they've got downtime mm-hmm. and they're probably thinking about their home and they're not still like in work brain mode. Like, that's where I'm at, where I'm like, I actually did bookmark the page to go back to this weekend. Yeah. And so I think that marketers could be a little bit, you know, smarter about how they're utilizing their touch points with their customers to think about what these people might be experiencing right now. I think that also something, you know, Rach, you had mentioned that, you know, a lot of our clients are having us work on this, you know, internal marketing material for them, including newsletters, right? And I think that that's probably, and you guys can feel free to push back or jump in if you think otherwise, but, you know, with this pandemic, you know, founders and leaders of organizations are realizing that people want to hear from their companies more and realizing that their voice needs to be heard a lot more. Um, and so now they're like, Oh, I better turn this faucet on. Like, or I better, we better refine, um, this, this messaging and, and how we're doing it because, but that, that, you know, people do want to hear from them right now. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Yeah. It's this interesting thing where it's like, I think we see a lot of brands who are like, if this, if this uh, investment of my time or money doesn't result in money, then why is it worth my time? And I'm like, ooh, yeah, like it, things are different now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, And brand reputation is sort of a priceless thing that will last you your company's lifetime. Um, and so it's like you need to invest in your brand reputation right now and not and like you know, maybe set aside a certain amount of time and money for that. But, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not an infinite thing, but it's like, it needs, you need to look at that as like right now, specifically, it is as important as the amount of time and money you're putting into your sales campaign, because it will ultimately result in sales forever. Um, if you piss off people right now, they will remember that for the rest of their buying lives. So it sounds crazy, but it's like what brands do right this second, right during this time is going to affect them forever. And being too conservative with getting out there with like what we're doing in the COVID crisis message, because you feel like you don't have something to say. It's like you have to have something to say. People want to hear from you. If people don't hear from you, that's almost as bad as like saying the wrong thing. Um, so I think like really getting out there and, and like kind of being in service of your customers. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I agree with that. I, I want to, I want to hear that, uh, you know, also it's like, you know, I want to hear from the person where I'm, I'm putting my money, you know, like, am I, am I giving my money to, yeah, sort of the, the right thing? Well, that's, uh, and today of all days uh, to be having this, you know, where uh, people are not supposed to cross the picket line in regards to supporting, you know, brands like Target or Whole Foods or, you know, buying off of Amazon because they're not paying their workers enough and uh, all kinds of things like that. So mm. uh, I think that's hella interesting. I'm like, so I'm for milk run. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. If you're in the Portland area. Uh, please. Oh, Portland. I think everyone in Portland knows about Milk Run right now. They've gotten on like basically every media outlet in the last week. So 
I love that. Yeah. Go Julia. So mm-hmm. happy. Absolutely. Uh, that's amazing. One of our rebellious founders. We love Julia. 100%. Um, well, that brings us um, sort of to the end of uh, the episode here talking about um, you know, just tools and, and tactics and, and sort of, you know, the resources that um, you guys need to be tr- tuning into internally. I'm wondering if we can, you know, offer our audience any sort of like go-to structure or websites to be able to start to implement um you know, perhaps some of these things at home or, you know, Evie, do you have any advice on what small brands before going out to, um, seek PR representation? Are there some things that brands can do to get their ducks in a row before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, I think doing a little bit of research, um, into like what some of your favorite brands have done can be really, really valuable in understanding that process, but also getting out from beyond yourself. And like, you know, if there are people in your immediate circle who would maybe fit into some of your, um, like kind of customer personas, kind of asking them what they think some of their favorite brands are. Um, I think that's really important in like any kind of litmus test you can do. And then as far as like working with a PR agency, I mean, I think that there's so many articles and online resources of like different things you should be looking for. Um, You know, I think that whether it's PR or advertising or or digital marketing, um, not every agency is going to be a great fit for every client. And so um, really getting a sense of um, working with people that you trust, um, understanding what it means to be a good client um, and really understanding how your dollars are spent um, and understanding that you know, as much as you're trying to make money, like, um, you know, marketing people are very much trying to make money as well. And so, you know, having an understanding of what their rates get you, but, um, not trying to get things beyond that, if that makes sense. So understanding Mm -hmm. where you fit in the budget world, um, and what you can get for whatever budget you have. And there's a lot of articles, a lot of really great articles out there. So, you know, it always comes back to Googling it. I mean, darn it if Google just (laughs) doesn't sometimes just do it all. Um, Well, that's amazing. I appreciate uh, the insight, Rachel, Evie, on on sort of this subject matter. Um, And yeah, that is, you know, again, our theme, this uh, series is all about disruption. So um, we are going to uh, talk with a disruptor later in the podcast episode. So stay tuned for that. And again, that disruptor within the industry is none other than Arlen Hamilton. Um, We had the absolute pleasure of interviewing her for her newest book. Um, And for those that uh, are not familiar, of course, it's about damn time. Um, was the amazing book here, How to Turn Being Underestimated into Your Greatest Advantage. Um, Super excited. Myself and uh, Evie got to interview Arlen all about it. Um, And here we go. You guys stay tuned for this amazing interview with Arlen Hamilton. Amazing. Well, 
Um, we love the book. <laughs> um, Thank really, you. Um, it's, it's an amazing piece of work. And um, I, I guess my first question is, um, when did you first realize that you had a book in you? Like what, how did you mm. were like, I'm going to sit down for a year and a half and write, write, a, write a book? Yeah, I, I, I guess I thought I would write a book at some point once I started with Backstage, once we were able to get investment. But I thought probably it would be 10, 20 years out. Uh, just like a memoir, because I feel like I'm just getting started and there's so much more left. But I, around 2017, right, right in the middle of it, I started getting hundreds of inbound messages a day on different platforms. Yeah. And then 2018, when the Fast Company cover came out, and after that, I started getting like a thousand messages a day. And the, the number one request was, will you invest in me? Mm-hmm. And the number two request was, will you be my mentor? And so obviously, like, everybody can't be everybody's mentor. There's, it just doesn't work uh, at scale in that way. But I thought, you know, it, I, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't read multiple books. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be the thing that helped help me get to where I am and it continues to. So that's where I said, well, a book is like the most scalable way of mentoring I can think of. And then on top of that, um, there's just, as you've seen, you've read, there's like really practical stories there. So mm-hmm. it's like a little bit of it. I wanted to just kind of get that out into the world. Yeah, that's amazing. What was the um, the process like for you? Like, like actually doing all the things that you do and then writing a book too? Like, did you work really closely with an editor? Like, how, how, what was your process like? Yeah, so if you see the cover... It says with Rachel Nelson, mm. Rachel. So a lot of people do go have like ghostwriters or things like that. I didn't want to have a ghostwriter. I wanted I wanted Rachel to get uh, full credit. I've known her for about fifteen years. She lives in England. We're good friends. She's never written a book. I've never written a book, but I knew I love the way she thinks and the way she writes. And I said, you would be great to help me kind of organize my thoughts. And since you've known me for so long, you can help me kind of see what would relate to people. So. You're right. I mean, my days, especially while writing the book, were so, so packed. And I would spend a few hours a week working with Rachel. And mo- most of the time, what I would do is read out loud to my voice notes on my phone. Mm-hmm. And then I'd have that transcribed. And then we would take that and turn that into a chapter or to an idea. And then the editor at Penguin, which is the, the publisher um, um, at Crown, they, she was just amazing. And so she just, um, you know, I've heard all kinds of stories about different relationships with editors and publishers. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not. So I didn't know what to expect. But her name is Talia. And uh, she, she was just the best I could have, I could have imagined for my first book, for sure. Yeah. So are you thinking of a follow up at some point? hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> already, already, already working on it and uh, excited about it. But I definitely... So you'll 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 see content come for me for the next few years and across publishing across podcasting both scripted and unscripted or non-scripted and then and then television and film you'll see that over the next several years and the book part of it is just like the publishing part is so exciting mm. to me. Mm, that's amazing. That's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, in your book and kind of like I feel like just I you know I followed you I followed your career. Um, since you like kind of popped into the scene and um, I've always really had a lot of respect for sort of the value in which you talk about um, being self-made um, and then that really like hit home for me reading your book um, 
Would you say that that's like a quality that you really value and look for in companies that you invest in? Well, actually the title is, there is no such thing as self-made. Right. <laughs> and, and so what I was trying, what I'm trying to say there is, and I've said this, you know, from the beginning too, is like, absolutely. I, I take a, a lot of credit for a lot that has happened <laughs> in my life, but there's just no way any of us could get anywhere without other people like mm-hmm. you right now, you act, asking these questions and caring about it and, and reading the book and all that. Like that is to me, part of the community that makes what this magic is happen. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's what I'm giving hold to. But I, I definitely look for people when I'm looking for investments, I'm looking for people who who take charge of their own destiny for sure, and who um, have a strong um, uh, what is it locus of control? Mm-hmm. You know, like oh, they yeah they don't they don't say well it was this person's fault and that person's fault and I didn't get this because of this and that. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a it's a fine line between recognizing institutional biases that hold us back and mm-hmm. also taking full control of what we can control and what we can uh, do for ourselves. And so I like to I definitely uh, I'm drawn to people who I feel like take the responsibility for themselves. Yeah, amazing. Um, I also really love the underestimated, um, the way you talk about that in the book. And I definitely, yeah. I feel like for all of us at Rebellious, like that's something we, we, we all kind of come together on, um, and like with our founders as well. But, um, I'd love to just like, kind of hear you dive in a little bit about kind of what that word means to you and like where, where it's sort of what it means to you, you know, a few years ago and what it means to you today. Mm-hmm. I think it means the same thing as a few years ago when it was first coined in a meeting uh, at backstage by KG Harris, one of our, one of our uh, portfolio CEOs. And today, um, because a lot, it mainly came, came from and still kind of reminds me of this is that when I say the word underrepresented, like when I'm explaining myself, you know, you introduce yourself, like I'm a, I'm a managing partner of a venture fund that invests in underrepresented founders. 90% of the people who hear that, who are not, who are like white men, right. Mm. For the most part, even, even white women, uh, just just affluent people, right? Mm-hmm. The first thing they think, and the first thing, the way that they kind of project that to me is they think, oh, that, that's so sweet. Or like, that's such a good thing you're doing for other people. And they kind of give me that sort of look as like, oh, bless your heart. Mm. You know, that, and so what I was trying to say is like, women are not down and out. We're not, we're just because we're, we're underrepresented in place. That doesn't mean we're like, that is, it's not a bad word, right? It just, it's like a fact. So I'm going to flip it on its head a little bit and say, what if we told you what we were really saying was that we were underestimated. And that's when the light bulb comes on to a lot of um, uh, uh, competitive investors that I know. Mm-hmm. That's when the light turns on to, wait a second, you're just saying that you are you are an asset class that I haven't looked at before. I don't know enough about, and that means other people don't either. So if I were to get a little bit of knowledge about you and information, if I were to dig a little bit deeper, I would have an edge. Okay, now I can justify that in my head and then I'll learn more. And it's just the truth. You see you see that in how I, I've never given birth. I don't have a child, but I have all, the ultimate respect for those who have and, and those who have adopted and those who can't and all of that, right? But sometimes investors, there's these horror stories of, of male investors asking women with children, do you think that you can do both? Can you, ha- can you raise mm-hmm. a child, raise a family, and have a company? They don't ask men that, mm-hmm. A. Mm-hmm. And B, 
To me, it's the opposite. It's the multitasking of that. You've already proven to me that you can by just having a child. Like when I go to, when I used to <laughs> go to airports and I see a woman holding a child and wheeling uh, luggage and, get, and getting on board and all that, I'm like, I hope she has a company because I want to talk to her about it. Because I know, <laughs> and, you know, and don't let her have two yeah. because then I'm just like, where's the checkbook? Where can I find a way? To <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love that. The thing that like makes people worried is the thing that's like, it's not a red flag to me. It's like, a let's mm-hmm. go. It's a green, it's a green light. Yeah. Yeah. We see that a lot with um, our founders because we work a lot with early stage companies and um, some of the conver- conversations that the, the mothers have with investors just like really fire me up. It's just, it just feels so unfair that like, Mm -hmm. it's like this, you know, I'm queer. So I feel like the pressure is a little bit different for me, but I feel like there's so much pressure on straight women to procreate. And then it's like, what if you want to be a founder too? And it just feels like all the odds are like stacked against you in a way that feels really, really unfair. Yeah, it's it's an odd, it's very odd, and I yeah I I'm 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 gay, and I I still have that pressure from some. We we have it as women. We're some sort of uh, machines that are supposed mm-hmm. to just pop out kids, and that's what we do, and that's the first thing that we do. And if we're not doing that, <laughs> what are we doing? Why are you here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, odd, but uh, thankfully, Handmaid's Tale has come out and made us oof. look at how silly that, <laughs> that is. Just some light but, viewing. Listen, be listen, be yeah. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Um, Amazing. Um, So sort of like understanding, you know, you paint like a really clear picture of what your life was like in 2015, 2016. And like, what would you say, like, obviously your day to day has changed, but like, if what's, what are some of like the biggest differences for you? Just like even mundane things of like, for you, like that your life has changed, like these visual cues and these life cues. The last five years, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 over the past three years, I've managed a team that was anywhere the size of three to 45 across two countries and several cities. And all of the, not any size was, was like learning something new from going small to big and then going back to small, all of that was a learning process. And so it, there was a lot of more responsibility that I felt the the stakes have been higher. Um, But just in general, um, I felt like I was prepared for it for the most part, even though I was still learning. And um, yeah, I guess because I have done so many weird, odd jobs, like work on tours where you you do a gig and you go to the next city and the next morning you're starting all over again, 16 hour days mm. and no day is the same. To me, that's how it's been. To others, I feel like it would seem chaotic. I wouldn't be able to give you, okay, this is how my Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, it just doesn't exist. Yeah, But to me, it's almost like home to say that things are just whatever they're going to be. So it's not a great answer, but it's like, it's a, it's a higher stakes uh, game that I'm playing now. And a lot more people impacted, but a lot, also a lot more people paying attention. And so uh, there's a responsibility there that was not there before. Amazing. Um, how is social distancing going for you right now? <laughs> Oh, well, it's okay. It's been a few weeks now. Um, (laughs) It's going okay. I'm an introvert. So the part of it is helpful. And I I don't like to make anything like a blanket statement. So I know a lot of introverts are not having an okay time, but I am. Mm -hmm. And I have so far been okay with that. I'm also a, a creature of habit. So I don't mind the the monotony of certain things, you know, like the certain, okay, this is this, because so much in the day is so different. 
and I and I'm I'm you know I've been fist bumping for two and a half years straight, and also <laughs> for like for like eight years wanting to. So I'm all good with that. The rest of it is just like this mental game of. Um, I have to say, like I definitely thrive off of people's energy, mm-hmm. and I had planned a six month book tour. And so I was ready to be just on the road, nonstop, meeting new people, energizing new crowds, um, Mm -hmm. and just kind of feeding off of that and going back and forth. And so there is this thing that used to happen to me when I was on tour, when I, when I was working production and no, I would never see a stage. Uh, I was always behind the scenes, but the Mm -hmm. same thing would happen that happens now, which is you go on the road. And then even if you're gone for like, five days and you come back there's like this this depression that happens mm. because you're you're bereft of the of the uh that that charge that you get so i'm i'm having kind of like the off the road blues mm. if that makes sense yeah and that energy and it's just um it's something that i had to recognize and, and like oh that's what that is okay now that i remember what that is now i can deal with it and i can like address it and so I uh, have been addressing that, and um, that's probably something that people don't talk about a lot. But I, I, I definitely like talking about. It. I might even do like a, a, a Zoom about it because, you know, it's it's real. And totally. Feel, yeah, it's like it, it, it's like a mourning period. That I think we're all going through <laughs> yeah. in some way or another, no yeah. matter what yeah. we're doing before, because this happens so fast. And it, it yeah. took us all by surprise in the way that our lives were going to change. So I think there's that mourning that happens with everybody and everybody has a right to, to feel sad about what they want to feel sad about. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I know speaking to other clients, um, you know, we were all kind of set up to have the best year ever. Um, mm-hmm. and so it's really hard to just like, we just have to survive. Like that, that is a total win this year is like, if we all make it into 2021 at this point. Um, yeah, I feel like that, that sort of blues for us is like really familiar in the sense that like, you know, we get really pumped up for trade shows and like, there's so much work that goes into them on our Mm -hmm. end. And then it's like, as soon as it's over and you're on that flight home for me, I have like a really hard five day crash where I'm just like, I'm sick, but I'm not sick, (laughs) but I really just want to hang out with my cat. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's definitely, you have to go through it to get it. Mm-hmm. But it's so real. It's like chemical. Yeah. It's like real, you know? I'm I'm curious if you're, um, you know, hopefully like, you know, business as usual during this, but are you taking on anything new uh, during this time? Like any new things you're trying to learn yeah, or things along sure. that lines? I had to immediately do that to keep myself sane, even <laughs> though I have like a full pack day every day. Um, yeah, I started, it's funny because like my wife, Anna, we've known each other for five and a half years. We've been around each other for five years off and on cause she's German. So she's, we've been away from each other a lot, but we live together in Los Angeles and she's known me like through thick and thin, mm-hmm. but living together wise, she's only known me with assistance and like, you know, I do things to make things really efficient so I can, uh, perform at the highest quality, all of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm over here, like looking at YouTube videos, learning how to fix our, um, our, our stationary bike. <laughs> and I'm, I'm doing, I'm like cleaning everything and I'm washing everything. And I'm just like 
all the time doing all these crazy and she's just like I've never how did what <laughs> like I've never seen you well, how did you learn how to do that and and I'm I'm uh I'm taking webinars I I'm taking like freight logistics webinars every week and I'm so fascinated by it I'm just so excited by it it's so fun interesting to yeah it's I so fun that. and I'm learning about all kinds of things like I'm taking courses and it's just, um, I, I love that. I love it. Yeah. They, I was talking to actually a finance professor at the Berkeley College of Music yesterday, and he was saying that this is actually the time where people, most of the people during a quote unquote recession go back to school like right now. So I yeah, think it's, yeah. we're all empowering ourselves to learn something new. I love that. Sure. Sure. Um, well, amazing. Well, I know that we only got you for like another minute. And so do you want to just um, give our listeners all the details on where they can get your new amazing book? Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's called It's About Damn Time. You can get it at itsaboutdamntime.com. It's available on a hardcover, ebook, and audio, which I uh, performed the audio. And I was really excited about recording that. It was the first time I ever did that. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just, I, I hope that what I'm hearing so far is that like no matter what your background is or where you work is you don't have to know anything about Silicon Valley by the way to to enjoy it that you're getting something out of it and that's just kind of what I hope is that at least a chapter or a section speaks to you and I can't yeah. wait to to hear about everybody's uh feedback about it and and um there in the book you you learn how to how to get in touch with me and how to keep in touch so I, I hope to hear from you soon yeah thank you I so much Arlen. it was a real pleasure Thank you both. I really appreciate it. Amazing. Right. Thanks, Arlen. Well, have a great day. I'm curious to know how your freight logistics courses go and <laughs> um, good luck to you on that. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Right. Bye. Bye.